we're a little bit behind some of the other regions of the church. We have uh, three other regions preaching through this passage, too. And so we're going to do a little bit of catch-up today and uh, read about John the Baptist and Jesus. What we did not look at, but you'll, you'll be able to receive it online if you go to our website, uh, is the, the sermon on Jesus raising the widow's son. But it's an important context because Jesus has just raised a child from the dead. That's like pretty big stuff. I know you, you, know, you read the Bible and it's like, yeah, yada, 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 yeah, another, another you know, incredible miracle. Let's not ever get there, right? Let's never lose our sense of wonder and, and being astonished by Jesus and what it is that, that he does along the way here. But imagine a widow. That's you know, a, a time of grief unto itself. But then all you have is your one child and that child has now died. And the despair, despondency that would have surrounded that whole situation, and it all turns on a dime. It all turns on Jesus coming by and making all the difference in their lives. And from that point, suddenly he receives envoys, these messengers from John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in prison because he preached the word to the king, King Herod, about the unlawful marriage that he had with Herodias. Now, his time in prison was, uh, any time that you're in prison in the first century, you didn't have necessarily people taking care of you within the institution of that prison. Instead, you relied on your friends and family to give you food. Anything that you needed would have come from them. As such, though, you get to have a lot of contact with people. And so John had contact with his disciples who have come not only to take care of his needs, but now they're being sent by him off to Jesus because in this darkness time of John's life, he is now having a question about Jesus. And so, let's read. Luke 7, verse 18. John's disciples... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, John's disciples told him about all these things. What things? Jesus is raising the dead healing a centurion servant and preaching the word. So John's been told about all these things. He called two of them and he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And it's an interesting time, of course, for John to be such a bold, faithful prophet and have this kind of a question. Well, when they came to Jesus, well, I'm sorry, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases. Now, that's an interesting translation. The, the phrase is, in that hour. So, the disciples of John arrive. They have these deep questions about Jesus. Are you really the Messiah? Are you the one that he's been preparing the way for? Or are you like in a lineup of others to come? Like you're preparing the way and then they're preparing the way? Or are you the ultimate arrival that we should expect? Now he's gone from raising the dead and doing all of these things. And now the messengers are there in front of him. And the spirit of this phrase is basically with these two disciples of John waiting an answer. It basically says, then and there is the idea. Then and there, Jesus cured many who had diseases. As if to show, you want to know the answer to that? Hey, Bring me a tough one. Boom. There you go. New life to you. Completely healed. And how amazing would that be for John's disciples? Like, uh, okay, we get it. Yeah, you're, you're, you're the one. We, 
it's rather clear at this point in time. So, but here's what Jesus does then and there in front of these two disciples. He cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. That's just, again, I read these phrases and they just kind of just flow by me like it's not a big deal. You ever watch a scary movie with evil spirits in it? That, that like changes your life, but not for the better. That's just like a movie that's made up. Recently, our son, for his class, had to watch the movie Poltergeist as part of his homework. I was like, really? Like, are you going to be okay? Like, how can a teacher, I mean, a professor even allow something like that? I, I, I was even afraid for him, just watching the movie. And, and this is all part of the little demonstration, and the love of Jesus, by the way, all at the moment. And, oh, and, and by the way, evil spirits, I got that too. I got that kind of power. Let me just bring it all on display at this hour. And healed and gave sight to many who were blind. I'll throw that in too. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. This is not a random list on Jesus' part of these great accomplishments in the Lord that he just does here. But these are basically a list of checkboxes throughout the book of Isaiah that chronicle what is to be expected when the Messiah comes and what it is that he can do. But even more than that, it is speculated by many and even reported by this particular Jewish sect called the Essenes, they were the ones who copied down all the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're the ones who preserved the Bible and, and fled to the Dead Sea and to the caves surrounding the Dead Sea. And they were a group of, of Jews that had become kind of um, ascetic, if, if that is a, is a word with which you're familiar. They became kind of like monks, as you might understand that idea, and squirreled themselves away into these caves and lived rather rigorous lives. But they also kept a very detailed accounting of what was expected of the Messiah. And when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found a lot of their other writings as well. And part of their writings were their uh, anticipation of the Messiah. One of these writings looks exactly like this list. And so when Jesus gives this list, it's one of the reasons that many think that John the Baptist was an Essene, because the list matches exactly what was written in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the anticipation of the Messiah. That's a little nerding out for a moment there. Let's get back to the text. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus then began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Uh, the literal rendering of that word there is soft clothes. I'll talk about that more in a moment. No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. What do you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is what, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Malachi writes that. I tell you, among those born of woman, women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right 
because they'd been baptized by John. But the Pharisees, the experts of the law, rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? He basically says, What picture can I paint for you to let you know what you are like in this generation? Well, you're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to each other in song. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you said, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. And so when Jesus has the opportunity to address the crowd about John, he addresses them not just about John, but about what it is that makes him so great. So great that he's greater than all the prophets of the Old Covenant. And what is it, in a sense? What is it that Jesus regards as great? And that's what I want to tackle as we look at this passage today, because he gives us such a clear list of things that are not, and things that are, and then all of that is then brought and laid in our lap. So, my, my first point is, what does Jesus regard as great? Well, not windswept, weak-willed wimps. That's a reference to, when you go out to sea, there was greatness in the desert. You're not going to schlep on down into the desert if there was not something great for you to be able to behold. Was it going to be a reed swayed by the wind? What is that illustration that Jesus is giving there? Basically, anyone who just bows to the latest wind, who bends and doesn't hold to their convictions, is the reference that he's making here. And John the Baptist was no one who, when the pressure was on, was simply going to cave in at that moment or allow himself to be swayed by the popular winds of public opinion. And as a matter of fact, we, we see that rather clearly with his interactions with uh, King Herod. Uh, even, even though all the pressure was coming against him, John the Baptist brought it and brought it with all vigor. When John the Baptist was preaching in the desert, we read about that in Luke 3. And great crowds came out to visit him to be able to hear his word. And when you have a big crowd that's assembled, this is probably not the way to win friends and influence people. But John began his address to the crowds that had come into this moonscape of a desert, which is, which is South Judah. And this is what he says to them as they've all gathered to hear his words. You bunch of stinking snakes. I mean, that, that's his welcome to them. You brood of vipers. You low as a snake, rough, your belly on the ground. What are you out here to do? Are you out here just to cover yourselves? Are you out here just to make sure that you are hooked up during the coming wrath? Wow. Uh, this is obviously a man who's not you kind of sticking his finger up in the air to see which way the wind is blowing and then to be able to go in that very direction. You know, for us, if you want to be great, you can't be worried about what people think about you. 
And if you're a teen, especially our teens that have just kind of entered into the, the teen ministry, you've got pressure on you unlike really most of us. Because you have 7th and 8th graders waiting for you just a few months from now. And the pressure of their opinion feels like the weight of the world. But the question is going to be, are you going to rise up and be great as Jesus calls you to be? Or are you going to look to try to align yourself with whatever the wind of, of popular opinion is at the moment? Even for all of us, as we you know, try to hold to biblical values, I don't think we realize how much culture shapes our mindset and how much we bow to culture as time moves on. There's um, an interesting movie that I tried to watch from 1931 called Dance Fools Dance. And the reason I tried to watch it is because in the 1930s, Hollywood established the motion picture production code. That's where you get G, PG, etc. in the ratings of movies. They didn't have that before that. And it was a response to movies which began to undermine American morality. And the movie that they point to as a watershed moment where morality was somehow in jeopardy based on our, our consumption of media was this movie Dance Fools Dance. It featured Joan Crawford as a, a character who wanted, and this was the scandalous phrase that she used, she wanted to give love a try. And, and that so shocked the public as well as the motion picture establishment that they decided we need to have a rating on this movie. It also had two scenes in the movie where they were having a party on a big yacht. And in the midst of the party and the jubilation of the party, they decided to uh, just don their, their, uh, uh, their underwear. Now, their underwear is more than what most of us would wear to Casual Friday in 1930. I mean, it, it, it was, I, I'm surprised they didn't all drown. Their heavy underwear was so heavy uh, when, when you look at this movie. Uh, but, it, but, but it's interesting that that was outrage for the general American. Never mind Christian, non-Christian. This is a general American trying to live out morality. That was outrage. And, um, and now, my goodness, what a, what a difference. Um, and in Look Magazine, that doesn't exist anymore. Not many magazines do. But in 1959, Look Magazine was doing a retrospective on this issue. And they wrote that this is what the motion picture uh, production code said. No picture shall be produced which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. Wow. What? Really? Preachers don't even use the word sin today. And this is Hollywood wanting to make sure that the general audience would never be thrown to the side of sin. Now, how many of you watched Ocean's Eleven and root for them to pull off the crime? Everybody here! Everybody here! But it just shows you how easy we can be just subject to the wind of whatever is public opinion and how we are so easily shaped. This ought to scare us at the same time to realize, am I being informed in my conscience by popular opinion, or am I being shaped and informed in my conscience by Jesus, 
by the word of God. It's a very difficult thing to be countercultural. But if we're going to be great as Jesus sees the greatness of you, well then we have got to do nothing less than be as radically countercultural as it requires to be. And you know, at some point we've got to be the people who realize the emperor is wearing no clothes. And to be the one who speaks up, and our daughters are not wearing much more. And to be able to speak up and, and say something about it. But each day, we're going to drift more and more and more. Each day, whether it's modesty, whether it's morality, you pick it, we are on a shift. And you're going to be more and more unpopular because as the, the, the winds blow further and further and you don't blow with it, well, the, the good part is you stand out all the more. And by the way, if you're, if you're, if you're a teen and you're, you know what, you're going to get grief at school. There's something about you. They'll find a way to make fun of you. And it'll come. Why not let it be Jesus? Well, let's just let it center around that and at least then you're blessed as the promise of Jesus was in the last chapter. You're supposed to leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven if it's because of that rather than because of the way you part your hair or, or the way you cuff or don't cuff your pants or how skinny your skinny jeans are or are not uh, in the process. Oh my goodness, imagine if that's all that we're kind of caring about. Why not just take it all off of that and let it be that dude is a Jesus freak, let me tell you. And just lay it on out there. And then you know what? When they have a moment where they really need Jesus, and they will, they'll know where to go. Because you're greater than just what society has to offer. Well, what is it that Jesus regards as great? Well, not satin and silk-clad sycophants. A sycophant is basically a... Um, it's a, a, a bootlicker, one who's just trying to curry favor. Um, anyone use this phrase so much, but a, but a brown noser. And and what what is Jesus referring to here when he says, "Did you go out to see in the desert the greatness of a man dressed in soft clothes, a man in soft clothes who lives in luxury every day?" Uh, this is the idea of a courtier. A courtier is a hanger-on to the king. A courtier is one who is very good at flattery, but very insincere, only to be able to see himself or herself advance. And maybe you've read Hamlet, I don't know, but Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, they're, they're classic kind of men dressed in silk and satin, soft clothes, just trying to curry favor with Hamlet for their own nefarious purpose in, in regards to that one play. Uh, but this is the very thing that Herod was. Herod wanted to be popular, and he was the king himself. It's the reason, in the end, that he had John the Baptist's head cut off and brought to his illicit wife, Herodias, on a platter. Because he cared about how he was viewed by the court. And, and again, he should have been not even worrying about what anybody thought of him. He was the king. But the idea of a, of a man in soft dress is also of the man who's trying to curry favor with those in power. Now, are you easily intimidated? Can you speak truth to power? That's what a prophet does. That's what someone regarded by Jesus as great does. 
is speak truth to power. Is it easier for you to share the gospel with someone that you regard in a lower station in life than you are? Or are you caring so dearly and seeing people through eyes that are spiritual rather than merely worldly that you're ready to connect no matter who they are? Realizing that we, we give no regard to what anyone has supposedly achieved or not achieved or high birth or whatever type of nobility that you might perceive of someone in a kind of an American version of a, of a class system. But without being able to drop all of that and really pray through to see people in that right way, you're going to be tempted either to compromise at work or among neighbors or family or whatever it might be, compromise on your convictions because you're trying to curry favor with people. And to be a people pleaser is not in any way going to bring you to a place where you can serve Jesus or in any way be regarded highly by Jesus. Because it's the very thing that he's condemning here. And the way that he says soft clothes, it also has kind of a bit of a, a ring to it as, as being effeminate as well. Uh, in that, that all you're doing is, is just being a subservient yes man to, to anyone that might be able to give you an advantage by their power. And you're not meant to live this sort of a life of under the thumb of others that might have some sort of an influence over you. You're meant to be able to stand on your own, to have steel in the spine of your soul, and to have convictions that only course through you, but also are, are uh, really um, articulated by you. It's interesting that I stumble over the word articulated to that degree. Uh, that you articulate and, and are able to serve Jesus through your great new birth in Him. Amen. It, this is one that, that hits me close to home. Growing up, this was sadly, this was all I was about. As a matter of fact, when they had senior superlatives in my high school, I, I got the little dog chain for being the teacher's pet. Because I would curry favor with the teacher and I'd be a grade grubber and I'd try to, you know, kind of wiggle my way up the, uh, the class rankings by, by getting every grade that I could and you know, kind of have the Eddie Haskell, oh, that's, uh, that's really nice of you, the, the way that you, you know, taught our class today. It was just nasty. You know? I look back, I just hate, I hate every replay of the way that I went down this path. And, uh, and I, I do hate it dearly. I also know that that's inside of me. And that if I'm not really staying in step with the Spirit in my flesh, that's the kind of the weird political maneuvering that might be tempted to, to go down. Uh, and, oh my goodness, if, if, if you have that at all, realize that just as kind of we can view it as we even view you know, me through that lens as just so repulsive, well then likewise, you know, Jesus looks at us in that very same way as well. And, and you know what we need to do is we just need to be what Jesus needs us to be no matter who it is that is before us. Think it through. Is there someone that you've caved on because you somehow had a fear of that person, what they thought of you, how they might regard you. Well, if, if you really want to get back on the track that you need to be on, it's not like, well, let me meditate on that. No. Be real. Go back and show, you know what? I really was being duplicitous. I was, I was compromising on what I really believe in that conversation that we had. I hate that I did that. It's part of my sinful nature of being fearful, but no more. No more. I'm coming back to you to let you know, here's where I stand in this situation. Do it. It's, it's so freeing. It's the life that you're meant to live when you're reborn of Christ. 
and not childish church shoppers. When Jesus turns his attention to the crowds that are now rejecting him as well as John the Baptist, the last thing that he says is, what do you like? What's the picture I can picture you as? You are like a bunch of kids in the marketplace that are fickle as the day is long. And if you, if you, if you give you a, a piece of cake, you say it's too sweet. If we, if we give you a steak, you say it's too salty. No matter what it is, you're never happy. All you are is just entitled and selfish and spoiled. And, and thus this idea is that we, we played the pipe for you. This is a kind of an upbeat piece of music and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge. That's a, a, you know, a funeral song. And, and, you, and you did not cry. It's like whatever you're asking for, we've tried to give you. John the Baptist came and he was radical. He didn't drink. He didn't do nothing. And, and what did you say about him? He has a demon. And then Jesus says, I came to you. And you know what? I, I hung out with you. I went to your parties. I did the things that you did. And what do you say about me? You say, I'm a drunk and a, and a glutton. No matter what you get, you're going to find fault somehow or another. And, you know, and that's why I, I sometimes think about kind of my life when I was not so much radically converted over to Christ, but I remember being what I would call a church shopper. And that I would go from church to church and I'd kind of have my arms folded and see what you got for me. You now entertain me. Make me feel good about myself. You know what? If you don't have just the right program to enlighten me and enrich my kids and fit my schedule, well, you know what? I don't think it's going to work out. Let me go to the, uh, the Yellow Pages and see what else is in town. The Yellow Pages was this big book that we used to get years ago and a list of things in there. Hard to explain. Let me just say this. It became Yelp. Yelp actually stands for Yellow Pages. Oh, now I see. Okay. They give you the entomology of your app. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it's very easy to do. I mean, is there, is there not, you know, pretty much every stripe of church up, uh, up and down, even the street where we are here along, along Warwick, and, you know, it could be a very tempting thing for you to go about it with a consumer mentality. But if you go about Jesus with a consumer mentality, well, then you are completely antithetical, opposite of what it is that he is expecting. Greatness comes not by consuming, but by giving. And by the way, even if you're here right now and you have a bit of an attitude or, or the church you were at last week or next week, you have a bit of an attitude of, you know what, I'll come by, I'll check it out. Well, guess what? You're not checking us out. Jesus is checking you out right now. He is the depth of your heart. Jesus is checking you out to see whether it is about, is this me, 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 me? Or how, wow, I, I need to get in alignment with what it is that Jesus wants here. How is it that I can be convicted and helped and, and laid bare to be able to allow the scriptures to guide me to this amazing place, so countercultural, so radical, that I'm meant to be? So, again, not... A, a, a swaying reed, not a, a man in soft clothes, not the children who are saying, ah, this doesn't really fit my needs, but rather, what is it that Jesus regards as great? A prophet. That's what he regards as great. And that's what John the Baptist was. He goes on to say, John the Baptist, not only was he great, but I tell you, the, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What made John the Baptist so great? 
Well, John the Baptist took a stand. What made John the Baptist so great? John the Baptist lived his life with a purpose, a purpose of God. John the Baptist lived selflessly. And here's the amazing thing, is John the Baptist, Jesus says, is greater than all the prophets that came before him. Elijah, who faced down 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah on the top of Mount Carmel, called down fire from God that consumed not only all the water that he had poured over the wood, but the sacrifice as well, dropped the mic and walked off the mountain. John the Baptist is greater than he. Or Elisha. Elisha, who, who, who was able to help the widow see her jars of oil expand so far that not only was her debt removed, but she was financially independent for the rest of her life. Elisha, who thwarted the Aramean army by, by having the Israelites just dig a bunch of trenches and, and, and make it look like blood when the sunrise came up, that the Aramean army ran. Elisha, who had the commander of the biggest superpower on earth come to his door, and Elisha's like, nah, you know what? I'm not going to go out and see him. This is Naaman. He said, you know what? Just go tell him to dip seven times in the Jordan. He'll be all right. You'll see. He'll take away his, his leprosy. And, and, you know, Naaman's like, ah, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. But, all right, I'm going to try it because I'm that desperate. And he's cured, radically transformed, and not, so, not only cured, but, but converted over to, to Yahweh, the God, the, the God of Elisha. Elisha, who was able to say to his assistant, open his eyes so that he may see. And as he opens his eyes to see, he sees that those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And, and he's able as a prophet to look up and to see all around them was a great circle of chariots of fire all about them. Greater than Isaiah. Isaiah who predicted the Messiah. Isaiah who in the end was hid in a tree and by legend has it and according to Hebrews 11 was sawn in half for preaching the gospel to the northern kingdom trying to warn them. Jeremiah who, who laments Israel and preaches to Judah even as Judah is taken away into captivity who, who preaches to the superpowers of Egypt and Babylon. Daniel who ends up in exile and is able to face down Nebuchadnezzar himself even, even as Nebuchadnezzar becomes proud, it's hard to talk to a proud person. Imagine talking to a proud despot who is the leader of the biggest superpower on earth. And so Daniel does with conviction. Um, Ezekiel, who then lays out from captivity the picture of our restoration and God's people coming back. Greater than all of those, he says, is John the Baptist. And what is it that makes John the Baptist greater? Is it John the Baptist? More than all those great feats that I just said, John the Baptist was able to tell us about Jesus. There's nothing greater that any of these guys could have done than to be able to have some clarity about Jesus. And by the way, guess what you have? You have clarity about Jesus that John the Baptist could have only hoped to have known. And there's a little bit more to this that he says here. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. And then there's a yet. Because there's one more greater than sign that I've got to put up there. Because the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, this is not a commentary on who is least in the kingdom of God 
But I thought, rather than just have a, a vague idea here, let me just put a name to this. This is a true logical statement that I have up here. This statement holds water, is airtight as an argument, based on the words of Jesus. Uh, Laverne is greater than John the Baptist and greater than Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah. But don't let it just be Laverne. It's Felix. It's Carlos. It's Chris. It's Karen. Any one of you who are are in the kingdom of God, you are greater than John the Baptist because you have the message of Jesus. Jesus wants you to be not just great, but greater. And he's given you his gospel. He's given you the opportunity. Let's not throw all of that away by giving in to the nasty worldliness that would turn us into a swaying reed or a, a person wearing soft clothes trying to curry favor with someone in power. Or to be fickle about what is in this for me. We could drop those things and keep our eye on Jesus and bring Jesus to those who need it. This is the equation of your life. And this is not me kind of trying to spout some demagoguery to puff you up. This is what Jesus says. I mean, it seems, oh, no, not me, shucks, no. If that's the humility that we always say about it, it's false humility. It's not true humility. This is who you are. Teens who just stepped into the teen ministry, guess what? Paula is greater than John the Baptist, is greater than Elisha, Elijah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. How amazing is that? That this is who we are. And, and to recognize there's so much that has been given to us because of Jesus. Now is not a time to try to align ourselves with culture. Now is not a time to go back and see how much it is that we can fit in. Now is a time to trust in what Jesus is saying, to be the person that you were meant to be, to be the person that you were reborn to be, to be the person that Jesus regards as great. Amen. Amen.